Jan Vermeer, or Giannis, there's some debate on which he would have preferred. Most art historians call him Jan or just Vermeer, was a 17th century Dutch painter. And uh, this past couple of weeks, I've been reading a biography about his life. He lived in a pivotal, pivotal century, the 17th century. And he lived in the Netherlands in a city called Delft. And he was right at the middle of a changing world. And it's a pretty interesting book. But this week, uh, I discovered something new. And so I wanted to share it with you about how Vermeer went about his paintings. Now, if, if the name doesn't sound familiar to you, I know you've seen his work. Um, his probably his most famous painting is called The Girl with a Pearl Earring. And uh, I really like the one he painted of his hometown. It's called A View of Delft. And it's probably kind of small for you, but you should look it up on Wikipedia and blow it up. It's amazing. Now, Vermeer's paintings are masterworks in his use of color and light. And so you, you kind of, even like non-art people like me, I kind of get drawn into these paintings. And there's something extra to look at, how he circled his brush and how he blended yellows and blues and the light shining on buildings, perfectly casting the shadows of the clouds. It's just amazing work. And for a long time, people have really wondered how he was able to capture what we look at and recognize as almost a photographic quality to his paintings. Uh, it's amazing to think, if you blow this picture up, a view of Delft, that a guy sat in a studio, probably a borrowed studio, and painted with oil paints the picture you get to look at. It's just amazing the kind of skill and gift he had. About 100 years ago, though, uh, art historians and scientists started analyzing his work, and they noticed a pretty consistent pattern that all of his portraits and the objects he painted were painted in what they call photographic perspective. And a photographic perspective is the way that when you take a selfie, your face looks like a horse. You know, it's right up all up in there because <laughs> you're really close to the camera, and so everything is showing. But the people who are just a few feet behind you look really tiny. Uh, Vermeer captured this. Uh, the people in the foreground of his paintings are significantly larger than the people or the objects in the background. And we look at them and we think, wow, that's amazing. That looks like a picture. But for people living in the 17th century, it was totally revolutionary. In fact, uh, one visitor from The Hague who came to Delft to look at Vermeer's works wrote in his diary, he said, the most extraordinary and curious part consisted in the perspective how did Vermeer capture the perspective that he had, where people in the foreground were perfectly proportionate to the distance from the people in the background? How did they do that? How did he do such a revolutionary thing? hundred years ago, art historians realized that he probably made use of a scientific instrument called a camera obscura, or we kind of think about it as a pinhole camera. And these contraptions or rooms or apparatuses or boxes consisted of one tiny pinhole at the end that would allow a beam of light into the room or the box. That light would be projected onto a convex lens which would magnify and invert the image, passing it on through onto a screen or a canvas on which Vermeer could trace the outline of the image and then come back later and add his wonderful color work. Vermeer captured the photographic perspective of the things he painted 
through a camera obscura, blocking out all the extraneous information, magnifying the tiny beam of light and projecting it onto his painting. Now, he's still a master, still amazing. It's not cheating when you're Vermeer, okay? We feel bad when we trace. We're like, did you do that freehand, though, or was that like tracing? But no, he traced, but he still added the beautiful color. And what I want to do on the next 30 minutes is cheat a little bit. I, I don't want to do anything original. I just want to take these verses and magnify them so you can get a clear perspective of Jesus. So there are two perspectives present in the passage, and I don't think either one is right. I think both are deficient, and I'm going to show you why. But the more important perspective is the perspective of Jesus that you leave with today. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, I know we've already prayed, but I sense you moving right now. And so I just pray that you would have your way in this sermon. Magnify Jesus, help me decrease, so that we can love him and live for him. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you're reading through this gospel on your own, you come to verse 7 of chapter 3, and you're, you're tempted to sort of just breeze through it. You know, it's kind of extraneous information, right? It's really a summary that Mark puts together. You look ahead and you see in verse 13, Jesus is going to um, anoint and commission his disciples, his 12 disciples, to be apostles. He's going to send them out with authority to heal illnesses and cast out demons and to teach the good news of the gospel. Right after that, he gets into a deep conflict with the Pharisees where they say that he's possessed by a demon and his mom and his family thinks that he's lost his mind. You're like skipping these summary verses to get back to the action. But as I've been working my way through it this week trying to draw out the truth of Jesus, it seems to me like Mark's summary in chapters 3, 7 to 12 are really an invitation to press pause to catch your breath, and to look into the story of Jesus that we've seen so far. I mean, th think about it. It's crazy to think. Can you believe how fast time's flying by? We've already spent 12 weeks working through Mark's gospel, week after week after week, seeing really exciting stories of conflict and of Jesus being revealed as the Son of God, the Messiah, and the King. You know, it, it's sometimes like drinking out of a fire hose when you're reading the scriptures. It's like, am I catching everything? Well, in verses 7 to 12, Mark presses pause and summarizes the kind of things Jesus has been doing. He highlights two major themes. Throughout chapters 2 and 3, you know, because I tell you every week, that Mark has been bringing up these two competing pressures. Right? What are they? On the one hand, you know, opposition from the religious leaders. And on the other, growing adulation from the crowd. In verse 7, Mark brings this up again. He says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. This withdrawal, which is really, you might call it, a strategic retreat, follows on the hills of verse 6, where the Pharisees watch Jesus heal on the Sabbath and immediately go out and conspire with the Herodians about how they might destroy him. Uh, not too good in the city. Let's retreat, guys, out here to the sea where we can get away from the enemies. But then, as soon as he gets there, here comes the other pressure. He's surrounded by a great multitude of people who are so enthralled by what he's doing that they press in to touch him, and, and he has to devise an escape plan. Hey, guys, if these people get too much closer, I'm going to have to hop on this boat so they don't kill me and crush me. 
So I, I like the way R.T. France put it. He says, this is Mark's reminder that despite the intense pressure from the political and religious elite, the people love Jesus. Then there's the second theme, the theme of authority that Jesus has been powerfully exerting over all things. He does it in the synagogue of Capernaum. Wow, a teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him, right? Authority in his teaching over demons. In illness where he just touches people, they're made well. He says the word and the leper is cleansed. I'm willing, be clean. His authority to forgive sins. And, and here again, Mark brings this up. He says unclean spirits were coming and they were falling down before him saying, you are the son of God. And he says to them, be quiet. He tells them to be quiet so that he doesn't make him known. And so these two pass, this passage is a, is a neat little summary. It's a bridge between Act 1 and Act 2 that captures our attention, forcing us to see once again those two themes. But it also invites us to consider the two perspectives of the groups, the multitudes and the demons. And I think both of them are off base. And so here are the two perspectives present in this passage that fail to capture who Jesus really is. Right, the first is this. Jesus is a miracle worker, but not the Messiah. This first perspective comes through in the multitudes who came to Jesus. Mark's summary tells us that though Jesus' ministry has primarily centered on the cities and villages of Galilee around Capernaum, his fame is spreading and his scope of ministry is enlarging. Did you see all those places that Mark tells us? He said a great multitude from Galilee followed. And also from Judea. Galilee's in the north. Judea is to the south. It's the ancient homeland of the Jewish people, the tribe of Judah. And so when they came back from Babylonian exile, they took up residence once again in their ancestral home. And that became known as Judea. Its capital was Jerusalem. But south of that was a place called Edomia. And that's the Greek translation or the Greek name for Edom who lived to the south of Israel. Um, that's descendant of Esau. And so I know some of y'all were thinking about Jacob this morning. Jacob's brother Esau is also known in Scripture as Edom. And his family lived south of, of Judah in a kingdom of Edom, a place we call today the Negev Desert. But at the same time, they came from beyond the Jordan to the east of the Jordan River. And they came from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, which is to the north, the, the place called Phoenicia on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, this description tells us, you don't have to know ancient geography. I had to look it up in my Bible atlas in the back of my Bible, okay? You don't have to know ancient geography to get the point. People are coming from everywhere to hunt and track down Jesus. North, south, east, west, people are streaming in because they've heard the news about Jesus the miracle worker. That's what Mark says in verse 8. They had heard of all that he was doing, and they came to him. Now, in one sense, I, I think this is commendable. Right? They were willing to leave their lives behind, whatever that meant, whether they were putting their business on hold or leaving their, their wife to take care of the house while they took their kid who was sick to Jesus. However that worked, they left their life in Edomia and Parian, which is beyond the Jordan and Phoenicia. They left all that to find Jesus, and that's commendable. Following Christ cost something, and these people were willing to bear the cost. They got out on the road, and they tracked him down. But at the same time, there are indications that maybe their perspective is a little bit off base. Uh, ben Witherington draws, he's one of the commentators I've been using for this series, 
he draws attention to the way they try to touch Jesus. Right? They're all trying to just get in and touch him. And he says they seem to have a magical view of Jesus, believing that if they can just touch him, they'll be well. Like he's some kind of lucky rabbit's foot or something. That if they just touch him a talisman, if they rub his belly, you know, like the Buddha thing, like they just got to touch him, they're going to be healed. They're like the people in Capernaum who lined up outside Peter's door. And Jesus had to get out of town, remember, and go to a desolate place and pray. His disciples are frantically looking everywhere. Jesus, the whole town is trying to find you. We've got to get back down there. There's lots of work to do. And he says, no, listen, we've got to go someplace else. For I must preach there also. For this purpose I was sent. The people are magnifying Jesus' miracle-working ability, but there really is no indication that they are paying attention to his preaching, to his teaching, to the message that he considers the primary aim of his life, declaring, like he did in Mark 1.14, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I've turned this over in my mind. We know Jesus is glad to work miracles. Seems like everywhere he goes, he's healing people. He's glad to exert his authority over illness and over people with demonic possession and oppression. But that wasn't all he did. And I think to think of him only as, or even primarily as, a miracle worker keeps his true identity out of focus. It takes something that's supposed to be in the background, and it brings it up to the foreground. And we know this is the case because he constantly had to point this out to people. For example, we're going to get to the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 next spring. But we should look at it now. He's, he feeds 5,000 men and all their families. And immediately goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so the next day, the people are trying to find him everywhere, and they hear that Jesus has gone to the other side of the sea. And so these 5,000 people, this is in John 6, and you can go ahead and turn there because we're going to read it in a second. Uh, all these 5,000 people, it says they got in boats and went across to the other side. Now, think about that. 5,000 people contracted boats to take them across the sea. That must have been crazy, like a fleet of ships. All the fishing, all the fishing vessels on the Sea of Galilee were conscripted to carry Jesus' adoring crowds. That's got to be the only thing you can deduce from that. And so when they got there, finally they've caught up with Jesus. They're ready for him to keep doing what he's doing, like feeding them miraculously with bread. And so he tells them in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They're thinking about the, the bread he multiplied. But he's got something else in mind. He said to him. I am the bread of life. 
And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. See, I think this is the great danger in viewing Jesus as a wonderful miracle worker. The focus gets on the miracles and off of the miracle worker. And that's exactly what the multitude seem to have done. They recognize him as a miracle worker, somebody you're willing to leave everything behind to track down so, he can just, so you can just touch him and get a little dose of whatever he's got. But I wonder, did they have time after the miracles to hang around and soak up the words he had to say? Or were they just looking for the blessings of the kingdom, not the king himself? You know, the thing we always say, they were focused on the gift, but not on the giver. I think it's right, like one person said, Mark's enough of a realist to recognize that it was primarily the hope of physical and spiritual deliverance which motivated the crowds. They wanted what Jesus had to offer. Did they want him? You know, this isn't just a first century problem or a first century perspective. M many people, and I've, I've been doing this long enough, growing up in church, I've seen it a thousand times. Many people come to Jesus because of what he can do for them. But they never press in to who he is as the all-satisfying gift. They hear he saves and restores and heals and provides, and so they come to him because, after all, somebody's got to save their marriage. Somebody's got to fix their kids or their spouse. Somebody's got to bail them out of all the trouble they've gotten themselves into. And, hey, Jesus is just the guy for this kind of job. This is what he specializes in. He's a miracle worker, the way maker. This is the guy I need. And so they come to church and they give him a shot. And I think, have any of y'all ever been invited to come to a timeshare presentation? You know, they, they tell you, hey, we'll pay your way to Disney World if you'll listen to the Disney Vacation Club pitch. Well, well if you'll come listen about the timeshare, we'll give you a steak dinner. I wonder if that's not how people sometimes treat Jesus. All right, Jesus, do your, give me your spiel. Give me the lesson I need to learn so I can get to the good stuff, the steak dinner, the vacation home, whatever. You know, just get, let's get through this and you do your thing. Fix it, heal it, redeem it, restore it. But is that the right perspective? And that tells us Jesus is a means to an end. That if we come to Jesus, well then everything in your life is going to be great. But that's not what the Bible says. He's the Son of God, the King of all things. He's worthy of all our allegiance, our attention, our affection, our adoration. Everything we've got is His, whether or not He fixes it or not for us. And I, I don't know if that was the perspective of the crowds. I mean, they, went, they should have gone to Him and sat at His feet and soaked up His teaching and said, hey, conform me to the person you want me to be. My problem is not the symptoms that I see around me. My problem comes from within. Fix that, and then we can talk. But instead, they pressed in so close, they almost crushed Him given no regard to his well-being whatsoever. So I think that's, that's the first perspective. Jesus is a miracle worker, but he's not the Messiah. They're out of focus on who he is, taking what's in the background and bringing it to the foreground. But the second perspective is kind of like it. The demons. They're glad to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, but he's not their Lord. They're not obedient to him. They hate him. He's the enemy. You, know, you saw that in verses 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. 
I mean, you get what's happening here. All these multitudes of people come from north, south, east, and west to Jesus because they've heard he's a miracle worker and he can fix their problems. And some of those people are genuinely possessed by demons. And so when they press into Jesus, the demon within them makes them fall down in front of him and cry out, you are the son of God. And I think this is undoubtedly an act of submission in one sense. Like the demons, like this is what happened in Capernaum in chapter 1 when the man with an unclean spirit came into the synagogue and Jesus said, you know, be silent, come out of him. Uh, the demons recognized Jesus. This isn't their first time encountering him before. They're spiritual beings with a spiritual past, just like Jesus. And so they know who he is. And when they see him, they, they recognize him. And so they fall down before him. He has a greater authority than they have. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. So they fall down before him and say, you're the son of God, acknowledging the reality, his true identity, who he really is. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of God, and the demons know it. You think about this, in Mark's gospel, the son of God title is just about the highest and loftiest title that anybody anywhere gives to Jesus. It's how, it's how Mark begins his gospel. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark 1.1. Then Mark 1.11, Jesus is baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, you hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, God's son. It's going to show up again in chapter 9, I think verse 17, 27, um, not 7, in verse 7. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountaintop, and he's transfigured before them. And a great cloud descends on the mountain, the glory cloud of God like it descended on Sinai. And out of the cloud, a voice comes said, this is my son, listen to him. Son of God shows up again at Jesus' trial. And in Mark 15, after Jesus breathes his last, the centurion that's standing there says, surely this man was the son of God. Mark uses this title to drive along the action, to draw our attention to who he is. But it's ironic, isn't it, that it's the demons who are the first people besides God to, acknowledges, to acknowledge Jesus' true identity. By the way, one person said it, the wrong beings are saying the right things about Jesus. It's crazy. Why? I mean, it's a true statement. It's a statement that comes from God's own mouth. This is my son. It's orthodox. It fits with what the church has always said in every time and every place about Jesus. He's not a created being, but he's true son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, taking on human flesh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, this is orthodox theology, but it's not transformational. They fall on their face before him, but it's not like they're getting saved. It's not like they're asking for forgiveness for an eternity of rebellion. They're just acknowledging the facts, giving assent to some true information about Jesus. And y'all have known people like that. People who have no problem recognizing Jesus as a good moral teacher. I love that one. He's a good teacher. Or an example of what it might look like to put others' needs above your own. They might even, because they've been brought up in church and have sat through a thousand Sunday school lessons, know all the right answers to any theological question you could ask and quote scripture front, back, and side to side. But they've never been transformed by the truth. That's a mistaken perspective. That's why one person said there's only 18 inches that separates heaven and hell. The distance between your head and your heart. 
be full of some facts, some truths. I love that one, the abstract truth or principles, as we preachers like to say. There are three principles you need to know about Jesus, but what you really need is him to come into your life and radically up into your heart. Wouldn't that be better to have truth that begins here and moves down to your affections and then shows itself in your life? Now, I think the demons, obviously, didn't have the right perspective on Jesus, even though they had the right truth claim. You're the son of God. He was their enemy, and, he hate, and they hated him. And we fall into the trap. when we, we keep Jesus chained up in some theological truths and never allow him any authority, practical authority, in our lives. And so how, how do you get there? How, how do you move? Because this is probably the temptation you and I face to know more about God than we're actually living out. How do, you, how do you move from head knowledge to heart knowledge? I think there's really two ways. The first, Pastor John Piper says, the main way God moves our knowledge of God from our head to our heart is through suffering. You think about that. It's one thing to say, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. It's one thing to say God is good all the time. But what happens when you get the unexpected news? And all those things you say you believe are really put to the test. It's one thing to say God provides. It's another thing to live like it. And so God brings us through these seasons of trials where he says, okay, you think you know me. You know really what you do is you know about me. But walk with me, and let me show you who I really am. So that what you think you know, you feel. And you really know. That's what God does. He takes it from our head to our heart. And I know some of y'all are there right now. heard a statistic a couple weeks ago that blew my mind. I was at a conference at Flatonia Baptist Church for pastors. John went with me. And uh, soaking up good truth about how to become a healthy church. One of the speakers said this statistic that blew my mind. I never thought about it. He said 35% of the people who show up at your church for the first time are there because they're in the middle of a crisis. That's, that blows my mind. Because I figure that most everybody who shows up at church every week is in the middle of a crisis. Aren't we all? Aren't we all every day discovering some other uncomfortable and hidden truth about ourselves and about our world that's demanding us to think about things differently. But then, yeah, it is more acute for some people. And so maybe you're there today in one of these trials where God is putting you through the ringer, raking you over the coals. Feels like you've been left out high and dry. You know what I'm talking about. And his invitation to you is to consider your beliefs. What do you believe about him? Do you really believe it? Do you really believe God's good all the time? Or is that just something you say, like, he's the son of God? Or do you believe it? Do you feel it? Do you trust it? Do you know it? Do you live it? So the first way we get from our head to our heart is by suffering. And some of y'all know that from practical experience right now. The second way, and I think probably all-encompassing, I guess this catches everybody. We close the gap between our head and our heart through action. Through action. It's the case that I, I don't think we really believe something 
till it changes the way we live. Till it, till it changes the way we approach the world. And so I think the way we close the gap between what we say we know and what we really believe in our hearts is by putting it to, to work. I mean, consider what James says in James chapter 1 about hearers and doers. He says, don't settle for being a hearer of the word. That's good, right? To hear the word is great, right? preferable to not hearing it. Faith comes by hearing, after all. So you want to hear it. But why not go beyond that to where the real benefit comes? It's not those who are justified who hear the word, but those who do it. Do it. Or you could think about the full context of his discussion on faith and works in James chapter 2, verse 18. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. But what I think that means, and we could get together sometime and have coffee and talk about the relationship between faith and works, and I feel like I could explain that to you, but don't miss the abrasive point. As God's people, we're often tempted to assure ourselves that we're set because we know truths about Him. We believe things about Him. But the evidence of our life says otherwise. He's the Son of God, but He's not Lord. He has no practical authority in the way we live our lives. That's the danger the demons were in, and that's the danger that we are in today. And so, you know, it wasn't that the perspectives of the multitudes and the demons was wrong but just that it was incomplete and out of focus. Of course, Jesus is a miracle worker, way maker, promise keeper. That's who he is. But he's more than that. That's an outworking of who he is as son of God, Messiah, king of all things. Of course, he's the son of God. But yeah, that's got to mean that we're resting in his grace and living out lives of obedience to him as the one who's worthy of our praise. And so that demands us to ask the third one. The most important perspective of all. If they're wrong, what's right? What does the Bible say? We've been spending 13 weeks on who Jesus is. Who is he anyway? I think you could summarize it like this. Jesus is God's son who came to establish his kingdom and provide forgiveness for everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him. That's who the Bible says Jesus is. Any perspective that doesn't clearly focus on that is an illegitimate perspective. You think about passages like John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. Think about Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Think about 1 John 4. 1 John 4 is beautiful. Verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
We've seen and we testify, this is verse 14, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's good to ask, who is Jesus from Mark's perspective? What does the Bible say about him? But you've got to ask this. Who is Jesus to you? What perspective do you have of him? The end of your life, that's all that matters. Does your perspective of Jesus, does your definition of who he is align with what God has said? Anything less is insufficient. Have you gone beyond the perspective of Jesus as a means to an end? Does he have practical authority in your life? Do you do what he says do? Do you go where he says go? Do you say what he says say? Or is he still chained up in some abstract theological Sunday school answer? Are you trusting him? Are you living for him? You know, I don't, I don't do this often, but I was preparing this week and figure if Mark takes us into a camera obscura, focusing our attention on a tiny beam of light, now I'm going to magnify it for 13 weeks and then 40 minutes, then I owe you an opportunity to respond to Christ. If some of y'all have been here 13 weeks, and for all practical purposes, your view of Jesus hasn't changed at all. Hasn't moved an inch. He's still the guy in the dusty book grandma told me about and drug me to church over. How many times do you have to see him? How many sermons do you need to hear before you respond to him? Before you hear his invitation to come and then do what these crowds did and leave everything to come. So I want to invite you this morning to bow your head with me. God's people, would you begin praying for the Holy Spirit to have his way this morning? I want to rehearse with you some facts we all know. The Bible says that God created us for perfect fellowship with him. He placed the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, provided for everything they would ever need, and gave them one rule. And when they were tempted by Satan and rebelled against God's authority, God came to them, confronted them in their sin, and punished them just as he said he would. Because of their rebellion, you know that we inherit a rebellious nature. And so as soon as we're able, we add to their first sin with sins of our own. And we see the result. We see broken relationships and a broken world. We make decisions that we think are going to make our life better, and they end up making things worse. And God sees us in our sin and in our brokenness. And John says, He loved us. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. And Paul says that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. And so God sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the law that you and I are bound to obey. And then at the end of his perfect life, he willingly gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice for all who would ever trust in him. 
Because of that, his invitation is to anyone and everyone that if you'll hear his voice, if you feel his spirit drawing, if you repent of your sins, turning completely 180 degrees away from them, and take hold of him by faith, trusting that he is the Son of God and that he is able to save and that he is gracious beyond belief, and he'll forgive you of your sins. He's faithful and just to do it, to cleanse you of unrighteousness, to make you a new creation so the old passes away, the new comes. Essentially what he wants to do is restore you to his original design for your life, to replace your brokenness with his goodness and righteousness and truth, to conform you into his image, to give you his spirit so that you live in a way that pleases him and brings joy to your life. So listen carefully. That means there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are living out a life of sin and brokenness and people who are wrapped up in the mercy, grace, and kindness of God in Christ. I wonder, which are you? If you're here this morning, you'd be willing to say you're living a life of brokenness. I mean, everybody's head's bowed. Would you just slip your hand up? I'm living a life of brokenness. Amen. You can put your hand down. If you raised your hand, I've got another question. What's keeping you today? from repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus? What is it? And is it worth it? It's not worth it. Nothing is worth it. And so this morning... I encourage you to repent of it, to trust in Jesus. Maybe you need to pray a prayer, a commitment, something like this. You make it your own. Jesus, you know that I'm broken because you see my sins. And I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that you're God's son, that you came to save me from my sin, to forgive me of my brokenness and restore me to God's design. Please forgive me today and help me live for you. Or you could shorten it. And say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I think that's a prayer God answers every time. So if you need to pray a prayer like that, do it this morning. And church, I encourage you to think this. In what ways have you been guilty of a false perspective of Jesus? Have you lived out your identity as one of his people? Have you obeyed him? Has he had practical authority in the way you've lived? If not, I encourage you too to repent. To name it as sin. 
and to ask Him to forgive. Maybe when our band comes and plays for us, you need to come to the altar, kneel on the hard floor as an expression of your desire to give everything to Christ. Maybe you need to pray at your chair. Maybe you need to stand and lift your hands and giving it all to God. Maybe you need to grab the hand of the person next to you, ask him to pray for you, ask him to hold you accountable. And let's commit together to live out the right perspective of who Jesus is. Will you pray with me?